0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: If you struggle to fall asleep, then you may want to try my Sleep Whispers podcast. The problem may be your loud neighbors, or maybe it is restless squirrels living inside your brain. I can't sedate your neighbors, but... I can tranquilize your brain, squirrels, with my gentle whispering. Check out my Sleep Whispers podcast, and I will whisper you to sleep. With bedtime stories, guided meditations, fun trivia questions, and curious Wikipedia articles, just go to sleepwhispers.com or search for Sleep Whispers in your podcast app. Squirrels be going down tonight. An unlikely outlaw. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town.
2: On a morning in May 1991, a 10-gallon hat-wearing, sunglassed, beer-bellied, bearded individual exited a 1975 two-door Pontiac Grand Prix to enter the American Federal Bank Building in Irving, Texas. The person stepped into the bank's lobby and headed towards the counter, where a young female teller was smiling cheerfully. Hello, sir, the teller said. How may I help you? The bearded man slipped the teller a note. This is a bank robbery, it read. Give me your money. No marked bills or die packs. The stunned teller handed over a stack of cash from her drawer. The robber nodded, stuck the money in a satchel, and walked out of the bank. A seamless robbery with the perpetrator vanishing into the afternoon. This was the start of the near-flawless run of large-scale bank robberies that occurred between 1991 and 1992. They called the robber Cowboy Bob because of the 10-gallon hat he always wore, coolly eluding cops for years, and then, after serving time, having one more wild ride. This is the legendary tale of Dallas bank robber Cowboy Bob. So Cowboy Bob again, I keep saying that name, it feels comical, but it is kind of endearing too, was always calm, completely unarmed, polite, always almost completely silent. He avoided security cameras, checked each bill for marks or dye packs. Dye packs are those small dye-filled devices that someone in a bank can set off, and they stain the cash, and whoever was holding the cash at the time, like a bright blood red Cowboy Bob gave the teller a note announcing that this was a robbery and to hand over the cash and would casually leave the bank, placing a new stolen license plate on the back of his Pontiac every time and drive off. The first five times Cowboy Bob hit, it was masterful, so much so that the FBI, who were now trailing him obsessively, were driven crazy by how good this bank robber was. The beard and the hat and the silence made him really hard to identify, and the stolen license plates made him almost impossible to track. He didn't make scenes, he didn't peel out in his getaway car, he didn't attract much attention at all. He was always making me start to pull my hair out, former agent Steve Powell told Texas Monthly in 2005. How could this thin, little, dried-up cowboy be whipping us this bad, time after time? The sixth time was different, though. On robbery number six, when the Grand Prix pulled away from the first interstate bank in Mesquite, Texas, Cowboy Bob had forgotten to replace the plates. Powell and his team traced the number, taken down by a witness, to a Ford factory worker nearby. His name was Pete Tallis, and he'd given the Grand Prix to his sister, Peggy Jo Tallis, as a gift. Powell and his team raced to the apartment where Peggy Jo and her mother lived, expecting to find a cowboy hat-wearing, big Texas boyfriend guy, but it was just Peggy Jo. She calmly let the team in and showed them around. Peggy Jo, the FBI decided, must be the girlfriend of somebody, but... She didn't have a boyfriend, and she seemed so not the type to break the law. She was a 46-year-old, khaki-pant-wearing, loafer-loving Dallas woman who kept a pretty tidy apartment with her bed made and little figurines on the mantle. She would fix her mom's cereal and her medication every morning while they chatted. Peggy Jo wouldn't eat breakfast. She would smoke a cigarette and drink a Pepsi out of a coffee cup while she made sure her mom ate her breakfast and took her medication. Then Peggy Jo would gently guide her mother back to her bedroom, prop a pillow behind her head, set a glass of tap water and her romance novel on the side table, and walk back into her own room to get dressed. This was her life. Low-key, very caretaker-y, if that's a word. And she was a fixture in the community. But even when agents found a mannequin head with a fake beard in her closet and a sack full of money in her bedroom, they pressed Peggy Jo on the location of her boyfriend. She said, there isn't any man, I promise you that. That's when Powell noticed the glue still clinging to her upper lip and the flecks of gray dye in her hair. All along, suburban living Peggy Jo Tallis was who the FBI was looking for. Although female bank robbers are not unheard of, it's estimated that women commit less than 5% of the some 8,000 bank robberies that take place each year in the United States, according to Texas Monthly. Almost all of them are young women who, like most of the men who commit these robberies, do it for drug money. And even of these women, only a few of them rob more than a bank or two before they quit or get caught. When Powell and his team of FBI agents cornered Peggy Joe near her apartment in 1992, soon after their search of her two-bedroom apartment, they assumed they would never be dealing with her again. She didn't fit the mold. She was well-off, not so young, not an addict or an alcoholic. People knew her to be harmless and kind. A sweet lady who once chatted with me about the best way to grow plants on the front porch, a neighbor said. Who was Peggy Joe Tallis, a mild-mannered suburban lady or a hardened criminal? The answer was a little bit of both. Peggy Joe Tallis grew up in Dallas in the 1950s and 60s. She loved rock and roll, hitting local clubs with her friends, and the 1969 movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. She had a beautiful, wide smile that made you want to smile back at her, said Karen Jones, her closest childhood friend. And what was most special about her was that she loved doing things other kids didn't do. She once drove me around looking for stray dogs to adopt and then she took me over to the Yellow Belly Drag Strip just to watch cars race. Peggy Jo dropped out of high school after the 10th grade. She told me there was just too much else to do in life than spend so many days at school, Karen said. One day, in fact, Peggy Jo jumped in her car and drove to San Francisco because she wanted to see what life was like there. That's Dallas to San Francisco, everybody. That was just who she was, always ready for an adventure. When she was in her 20s, Peggy Jo got her own apartment in North Dallas and started working as a receptionist at the Marriott Hotel. She befriended another receptionist named Cherry Young, and the two would go out clubbing almost every night, ordering coors, playing pool, and flirting with men. They went to see the Doors and the Doobie Brothers and even the Rolling Stones. According to Cherry, Peggy Joe didn't have any immediate plans to get married or have children. She didn't care about finding the right career, and she didn't worry about money. All she wanted was enough to get by, to pay her bills, and have a little leftover for a few drinks. She told me she was saving a little so that she could someday go to Mexico, just to live on the beach in a hacienda and wear bathing suits night and day, Cherry said. She was beautiful and she was rambunctious. She always told me that deep down she was wild at heart. But just how Wild. One afternoon, when Peggy Joe and Cherry were driving around in Peggy Joe's Fiat, they passed a Wells Fargo armored truck, and Peggy Joe made a rather odd comment. You know, I could go rob that and not have to worry about anything for a while. You'd need a gun, Cherry said. Oh, heck, I'm smarter than that, Peggy Joe replied. One night, Cherry and Peggy Joe had a fight at a restaurant in Fort Worth. To calm down, Cherry walked to another bar. A few minutes later, Peggy Joe walked outside and saw an unlocked pickup with the keys in the ignition. She jumped in and drove away. The police caught up with her, and she eventually pleaded guilty to a felony charge of unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, receiving a five-year probated sentence. After that, reality set in. In the beginning of the 1980s, Peggy Joe's mom got sick. She had been heartbroken by a dude, she dated a man for eight months only to find out he was married, and had a strained relationship with her brother and sister. Her whole life just felt less exciting and kind of listless. Peggy Jo found a new job at a computer factory, and then she worked in the office of a mobile home construction company. She remained friends with Cherry, who by then was working as a cocktail waitress. Every now and then, we have an old-fashioned night and hit all the old places and listen to rock and roll, Cherry said. And one day, she called and persuaded me to quit my job so we could go to Florida and live for a couple of months on the beach. But in the 80s, Cherry got married and moved to Oklahoma City. Peggy Jo's childhood friend Karen had also married. I don't think she was ever able to get over the pain of the betrayal from the married man, Karen said. I think she decided to be alone. She had some more low-wage jobs, but her mom's medical bills started piling up. We don't really know why Peggy Jo turned to bank robbery, but she did. Maybe it was the easiest way to make a few bucks. At this point, she kind of channeled her younger self into Cowboy Bob and ended up enjoying the thrill so much that she continued to rob banks even after she had enough cash. But let's take a break. Hi, we're Eliza, Allison, and Carlin. and we're the hosts of Resolved Mysteries podcast. Our podcast follows the 80s and 90s television show, Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack. If you like true crime stuff, ghost stuff, alien stuff, this is your podcast. We do in-depth research on all of the segments that Unsolved Mysteries aired and give you the latest updates on every case. Resolved Mysteries podcast is available wherever you get your favorite pods. Join us and perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery
1: hi hello how are you hello how are you doing
2: are you okay am i okay do i say that every break perhaps nobody's
1: answering you i think that's the problem that is the
2: problem i need answers i need them in about three weeks whatever you can maybe
1: maybe episode 1000 you'll get that answer
2: oh episode 1000
1: we would like to say hello to everyone that's listening thank you to all of our patrons, thank you for supporting, and to our government. That's right. We have our mayors. We have a little Ashley Matson. Hello. A little Joshua Lambert. Hello. A little Dara Rosenzweig. Hello. A little James Harrington. Hello. And to our one and only governor, Avian Noble- the first, one and only.
2: <laughs> no. Right. Esquire.
1: It's not, no. Gonna, no, we're not, we're not going to be passing down the name. It's solid. It's set in stone. One and only. We decided. Man. So if you're out there and you have the name Avian Noble and it's not Avian Noble. Make
2: yourself known. Change it. <laughs> to Snake. <laughs> Whoa. As a last name. I thought First should... name, Beth. <laughs> oh, Beth Snake. That would be pretty right. cool. I don't know if Beth Snake cool. is like an actual very cool name. Yeah.
1: So hey, I'm you're Beth. Beth Snake. Oh, really? Beth Snake. It's like...
2: Oh, I thought you said snake. I did. Snake. Beth yeah. Snake. Oh. And then I heard you say steak. I don't mm, know. No, Am maybe... I hungry? <laughs> Where's this going?
1: I don't know. Steakums. Mm, they're good for you. <laughs> I wish. I wish too. I have one red hot, piping hot steak
2: (laughs) for who where how when
1: one review okay for us to read and weep this is from podcast addict back there again five stars hmm now you know I never curse do I ever curse on here almost never me too unless I'm quoting something then (laughs) I will that's my parlay huh I fucking love how much Rebecca fucking curses. Uh, and if you don't like it, then fuck you. <gasps> also, Jason is gorgeous <laughs> and their rants don't suck.
2: This is everything we've wanted ever wanted to hear. Honestly, this is everything in one review. It's a
1: greatest hits. And that is from Jay Thomas.
2: Jay Thomas has given me life.
1: Jay Thomas, whoever you are. Make yourself known. <laughs> Everyone's
2: got to make themselves known. So
1: no, well then I can make you my emergency contact. <laughs> and if you want to hear bonus episodes, ad free, no chit chat, just getting straight to the good stuff, you can go to Patreon dot com slash
2: Ghost Town Pod. So back in nineteen ninety one, that was her first bank robbery, and she was nervous, but she pulled it off. In fact. After the FBI's Steve Powell interviewed bank employees and watched the surveillance tape of that hit, he had no doubt that he was dealing with a professional. The only thing he eventually noticed that seemed amiss at all, that didn't feel like a completely seamless, perfect robbery, was that, I mean, the beard, but again, he a disguise, fine, but that she wore her cowboy hat backwards, so he was tipped off just a little bit that maybe she wasn't as suave as everyone thought she was. Peggy Jo was tried and convicted of her crimes as Cowboy Bob and served three years in prison. By the time she got out, she was almost in her 60s. Her mother had passed away and she worked at a local marina where she was very popular with families and a joy to be around. Before long, she was kind of high profile. She was this local character. Her kindness and helpfulness had made her famous in a different way. It seemed like she was putting the past behind her. One thing that I really love about her, too, is that you never see an article where she explained why she became Cowboy Bob. In fact, she never talked about it at all to any media outlet ever. She had people approach her for book opportunities, movie opportunities. People wanted to make a biopic about her, but she never took them. And she, again, never talked to press. So she's still a mystery. In the spring of 2004, Peggy Jo approached a man at the marina who was selling a Frontier RV. She gave him almost $6,000 in cash and promised to pay him $500 more at a later date. Her plan was to head down to Padre Island or Mexico and live on the beach like she'd always wanted. Peggy Jo sold or gave away all of her furniture in her hometown. She sold an old Volvo she had been driving. She carried a few potted plants over to her neighbor's front porch, and she drove away in her RV a couple months later. Peggy Jo left a telephone message for her best friend from the marina, Carla Dunlap. When Carla had developed breast cancer the previous year, Peggy Joe had checked on her nearly every day and had brought her a cap to wear when her hair began to fall out. On the message, she asked how I was doing, and she said she was about to hit the road, Carla said. And then she said, and no matter what happens to me, always remember that I love you. And then, not out of complete nowhere, but again to a lot of her friends and family, a bank robbery occurred in the small Guarantee Bank on the southern edge of Dallas. And then another at a local Guarantee Bank. This time, the robber wore a large black straw hat and a pair of black sunglasses and made one simple mistake. Peggy Joe got careless. She did not check for the dye pack. It exploded as soon as she walked out the door, covering the money with red ink. A plume of red smoke also began to rise from the satchel as she headed back across the street, dodging traffic to get to her RV. The smoke satchel caught the attention of a couple bystanders. Because of her disguise, however, they couldn't tell who they were watching, man, woman. They were not sure. Within minutes, a posse of law enforcement officers tailed Peggy Joe as she headed down the highway in her RV. She made one last-ditch attempt to get away and suddenly hit the brakes, turning the RV into a quiet subdivision. Before she could get to the end of that street, however, a couple of police cars raced past the RV, boxing her in. Armed officers in bulletproof vests leaped out of their cars. Minutes ticked by. Because the curtains were pulled across the windows, the officers were unable to see inside, and they didn't know who they were dealing with. From what could later be determined, Peggy Joe sat in the RV at her little kitchen table, smoking a cigarette and drinking a soda. On the floor next to the table was her black satchel, the money useless, almost all of it stained red. A couple feet away from the satchel was her fishing pole, and beside the pole was her box of family photos. A few more minutes passed. Peggy Joe went back into her bedroom where a .357 Magnum loaded with hollow-point bullets was hidden underneath her pillow. But that wasn't what she was going for. Peggy Joe picked up a toy pistol that she also kept in her bedroom. She walked to the door and opened it, her hands at her side. You're going to have to kill me, she said. Ma'am, you don't have to do this, replied one of the officers, a young man who would later be advised by his superiors to seek counseling for the guilt that would haunt him. You mean to tell me if I come out here with a gun and point it at y'all, you're not going to shoot me? Please don't, please don't do that, yelled another officer. But then she walked out of the RV, holding the toy pistol. Just as she began to lower it, four officers fired— she pulled off her sunglasses, fell forward, and died. The FBI still assumed they were accomplices in the RV. Police SWAT team shot tear gas canisters through the windows and stormed through the front door, stepping over the fishing pole in the box of photos. In the bedroom, they stared at the bed, still perfectly made up, a couple glass dolphin sculptures on the windowsill. After the all-clear was announced, one officer found a small baggie of marijuana and another officer found her purse, which contained $38 in cash and her driver's license. The FBI ran a records check and realized that the dead woman was none other than Cowboy Bob. Of course, authorities called Steve Powell at his ranch and left him a message saying that they had some bad news about Peggy Joe. Powell called back. Say it ain't so, he said, sadly. His biggest target was dead. A little Cowboy Bob, a little Peggy Joe, a total legend.
1: When you hear Stories like this, or crimes like this, it seems so far from a crime, yeah. And a, a real, not even an anti hero, almost like a hero hero. I mean, yeah. based on this information, totally. and I feel like the police can't wrap their heads around that it could just be one woman behind it, even when you said they, even when they were like, Hey. Here's all these things here that are evidence that you could be the bank robber, can't mm-hmm. be you. yeah And, you know, statistically, sure, you know, there's less of a chance of it being female or not male, mm-hmm. but they still couldn't, couldn't wrap their heads around it that it could be just this woman. Although if I was a police officer, as soon as I saw the cigarette and heard that she saw the Doobie Brothers in concert, I <laughs> would have known she was a criminal right oh. away. That's how, that's how yeah. I do but also, it, it seems like somebody wasn't using the money to pump drugs into the neighborhoods yeah. or or anything. It really seems like somebody who just felt that that's who they were. I, you know, you could say Peggy Joe become Cowboy Bob, or is it really Cowboy Bob sometimes becomes Peggy Joe? Yeah, That's kind of how I, I saw it and seemed like a, a decent person. And even when they, you know the rv was there they're like it can't just be this woman totally because they probably feel like oh so we just you know, shot this 60 year old woman you can't believe that it there's not no no there's definitely al-qaeda is definitely in there too
2: <laughs> for sure I mean, it, it's a it's, it's like a, someone who's who even after doing something so well and being like hunted by the fbi still being underestimated for a presupposition about who someone is. And that feels like it's a lot of the story is are of these biases when this person is like one of the most interesting people I've ever researched. Like it's so insane. There is so much sexism and you know ageism too around this story and, and many stories like it. It's it's frustrating and also great because she really does things on her own terms.
1: And the fact that she didn't capitalize on it past that, which she Mm -hmm. could have. She could have made more money selling her life story than probably robbing these banks. How many can you possibly get away with statistically? And she chose not to do it because she – I mean, what it seems like is like she wasn't looking to – earn money from her life story she was looking to be the person that just she live wanted it. to be yeah. yeah
2: just like live her life story
1: i also love you know she says no dye packs as if some other robbers are like can i get extra dye packs with that <laughs> it's like,
2: mm. yeah just I'm warning you i don't want any dye packs in this yeah, money yeah. i need th- to use this money for money things They're
1: like oh okay that's good
2: yeah whoo